I just want to introduce Adam to you. Um, Y'all have seen him around playing guitar and various other things. Um, so Adam is come under care of our presbytery, and it's one of these things we do when guys are interested in going into vocational ministry. Uh, they come under the care of the presbytery, and we want to give them opportunities to learn and to encourage them as they uh, learn to, to minister the word uh, in a way that's faithful and, and just and right. And uh, so he's been doing that. Uh, in March, he came under the care of our presbytery. I think it was March. And then the world fell apart. And I don't want to make a cause effect there, but I think, I think there might be one. Um, and so he's coming to preach to us today, and his hope is after this, uh, this fall, actually, to start at RTS Charlotte for seminary, and that's where he'll be going. But uh, he's bringing the word for us today, and so Adam McKinney, I don't know how you introduce these things. Thanks, Brian. Um, well, this morning, if you want to go ahead and get out your Bible, you can turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, you might remember that last week John Dunning, the RUF campus minister, uh, preached out of Deuteronomy 31 and God's people there were on the cusp of a major change in leadership and the main idea that John preached was that in times of fear and uncertainty God is with us. So this week we'll continue our brief break from Brian's exposition of Luke and turn back the page even further to look at the covenant in Genesis chapter 15. So I'll begin by reading in verse 1, Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, these are no mere words on a page. It's not just another good book you have in front of you, but this is the word of God of which we speak each week, the words of Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray over our time in the word this morning. Our holy Father and King, as we look to your word I ask that you would renew our minds afresh. That as we contemplate your promises to your people and your faithfulness to keep those promises, let us be moved and let us grow in our own commitment and love for you. Help us to see the glory of the gospel as the saints did who went before us long ago. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if you look in your bulletin, You'll see uh, Brian maybe dropped the ball a little bit here on the title, but um, originally the, the sermon was titled The Covenant, and I would add to that perhaps the phrase, The Covenant That Is Worthy. And I think this will make sense as we progress through the sermon, but I wanted to pose this question for you all as we begin first. What do you find worthy? I'd venture to guess 
based off of what I know and, and my meetings and the time that I spent with many of you, we'd have a lot of different answers to that question. I could see Brian making some sort of baseball reference to the Astros being a, a worthy contender, although I have no idea if that's true or not. Or maybe Sam Cassing would, and, and shout out to all of you who are looking online and watching us, um, maybe Sam Cassing would say, you know, I read this worthy book this week that, or, or this year that really changed my life. If we think about it, when we look at what's worthy and we look at the world, we're being constantly bombarded with all of these different things. You're shopping on Amazon and you see the next advertisement for the thing that you need now that's absolutely worth your money. Or you're, you're, you've turned on your TV for the evening and you're just scrolling through show after show on Netflix trying to find out what's really worthy of your time. In a world that is vying for our attention, that is, is continually telling us this thing is worthy, I want to this morning point to the worthiness of God's covenant promises to his people. And so we'll see Abram contemplating the worth of God's covenant. And, and let's be mindful as we do that of the promises that God has made to us. So we look now in verse 1 of chapter 15. And we see the passage beginning with the phrase, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram. And so a natural question is, what are those things? To answer that, let me point to the story of Abram's life as it's been folding up to this point. And I'll mention, by my count, this is the first sermon at Manhattan Press out of the book of Genesis. So if you're interested in this stuff, you can ask Brian to start preaching on this more. Um, but let me give you just a quick overview of, of Abram's life in, in the book of Genesis so far. Genesis is itself unique not just because the story of Abraham is, is situated here in the middle, but because as the book name, the name of the book implies, it tells a story of beginnings, the beginning of the world, the beginning of God's plan, and the beginning of God's people. Abram is one particular person among God's people who's later renamed Abraham, and we might use these names a little bit interchangeably. Abram's not only the most focused on person, in the book of Genesis, but he's one of the most frequently referenced characters across Scripture as a whole. By my count, he would clock in at number seven across total mentions um, of, of any character in the Bible. And so we'll briefly touch on, on a few of those passages elsewhere outside of Genesis, but the beginning of Abram's story starts in chapter 12. Abram grew up in a family and among a people group that worshiped false gods. Jewish legend even has it that Abram and his relatives made a living by selling idols in their family shop. But Abram was called away from all that by God, and not just called to worship the true God, but to give up his land, to give up his home, and in obedience follow a plan that God had for his life and for his descendants after him. God's plan involves what we call a covenant which is a binding agreement between two or more parties. Another word isn't mentioned until chapter 15, as we'll see today. The passage that we're looking at makes it clear that from the beginning of Abraham's story, God entered into a covenant with him. Alongside God's command for Abram to leave his land, God promises that he'll make Abram into a great nation that blesses the entire earth. So Abram, back in chapter 12, believes God and leaves his home and his family. But the land is, is soon after struck with famine, and Abram turns up in Egypt, where he's fearful that Pharaoh is going to kill him because 
simply because his wife is beautiful. Thankfully, God protects Abram, and, and he even leaves Egypt a wealthy man. But then as he ventures on toward the land that God's promised, conflict erupts between Abram and his kinsman, his nephew Lot, who had been traveling with him. And because of that, they have to split up their party and go separate ways. Then Abram, to add to the troubles he's facing, hears that four kings have taken his nephew Lot captive. And so in the middle of the night, he gathers 300 or so of his best men, and he rides out to meet those kings in a surprise battle during the night. He defeats the enemy army. Abram frees his nephew. And shortly after that battle, in in the paragraphs immediately preceding chapter 15, there's an extraordinary scene between Abram and a man that we call Melchizedek. As he's traveling through a valley, Abram comes upon this man, Melchizedek, who is described as a king. And Melchizedek comes out to meet him in a land where worshiping the true God is virtually unheard of. This guy named Melchizedek is revealed to be a committed servant and even priest of the true God, which is remarkable, truly remarkable. And he blesses Abram, and in turn, Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything owns, he owns, and then he goes on his way, very much refreshed from meeting Melchizedek. And so it's at that point, after all those events have unfolded, that we come to our place here in chapter 15. And when it, when it says, after these things, it's, it's referring to the things that have been going on in Abram's life. Now, the main point that I want us to see as we continue to consider verses 1 through 6 is that God's covenant comforts fear. Continuing in verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. When you think about what God's saying here, fear not, Abram, doesn't this seem a little odd, given that Abram just had a recent run of good luck, given his, his military victory and this, this worshipful encounter with a, a fellow member of the household of faith in the, the land of, of pagans? What, what exactly would Abram have had to fear? Let's recap his story. Abram had to leave his home and his family he, he was made a promise by God, but one that hasn't exactly come to pass yet. He and his household faced famine. He was afraid of being murdered by a powerful man. He, he was navigating some, some tough family conflict. That's never easy. And as an old man in his 80s, we're told, or around there, Abram leads his men into battle against some powerful enemy kings. So if you were to just look at the paragraph before, you might wonder, what does he have to fear? But when you think about what's been going on in this man's life, even in spite of the victory and encouragement, this had to have been a a pretty turbulent season of life for Abram. Various commentators often speculate as well that his military victory may have posed more of a danger than anything because of the potential for those kings to rally and come back and attack him. Not to mention that the other inhabitants of the land might now be suspicious of Abram. Any one of those instances might have contributed uh, to the fear that we see here. Um, But I think the verses that follow below often even further clarity. It says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Above all of his other circumstances, Abram highlights this one concern in particular, his need for an heir. 
Having a son was not a matter of personal preference for Abram. It's very likely what he meant here was that he was wrestling with trust and God's very covenant itself. It's like Abram was saying, look God, everything I have pales in comparison to the offspring that you promised. But I'm getting older and older. Was I wrong to believe that I would have my own child? Or was this promise just some sort of figurative scene for one of my servants? God's proclamation that he will be Abram's shield was directed to comfort his fear of his enemies. But Abram's fear had to have been linked to wrestling with trust in God's promises. When we look to Scripture, I think we often find it difficult to relate to these scenes where, where there's warfare going on, where there's battles between different parties, where people are plotting against their enemies. We see that all across the Psalms. But what about what Abram is struggling with when it comes to wrestling with God's promises? Do you ever doubt the plan that God has told you he has for your life? Do you ever question the promises in Scripture for your family and your loved ones? Or do you fear in this season that economic provision caused by this sort of modern-day famine may, may create great hardship for your family? If we're honest, I think we can all relate to Abram's fear amid the troubles of the world. So in whatever way... You, you come this morning, however you find yourself grappling with questions or fear in, in this unique season that we're, we're going through, I want you to bring that to the table and just like Abram, bring your questions to God. Don't be afraid of, of coming to him with your fears. And let's see now how, how God responds to Abram in the verses that follow. In verse 4, it says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Not only does God specifically address Abram's fear, but he goes even further to explicitly confirm the promise of a son to fulfill the covenant. It's worth noticing that Abram was not entitled to a response from God. God had every right to say, how dare you question my faithfulness? God also could have acted like some of our parents do when we lived at home by saying, well, if you do this, then I'll give you that. If, if you're faithful in this way, then I'll give you a son. But this is no negotiation. And God's not lording Abram's tendency to ask questions like any human would over him. God's response is instead an unconditional promise, full of grace, and with the added clarity beyond Genesis 12 of, of this idea, yes, indeed, your offspring, Abram, will be in the form of a son, of your own son. And God gives Abram a sign of the covenant. In much the same way that God told Noah to remember the rainbow in the sky as a sign of his promise not to destroy the earth, again, here he promises Abram that the stars in the sky bear witness to the multitude of Abram's descendants. As Abram looked, at, looked up at the glory of the stars that night, and no doubt he would have been struck by God's own glory and, and, and begged the question, could not the very same God who by his word alone spoke all things into existence and who took what was dark and void and set every star in its place, that God who formed the universe, could he not have the power to take even an old man and fill his house with the new life of a single child? You know, last night, 
I, when I probably should have been uh, fine-tuning and polishing off some of the rough edges on this sermon, I was hot-tubbing with my girlfriend Anna and Pat Zimmerman at her house. Um, and it was nighttime, and the stars were out, and we had ample opportunity to look up and behold the glory of God's creation. And, and I, I think, I mean, for all of you who have spent time stargazing and appreciating what God has made in all the universe, it's hard to imagine a more spectacular sight than that which Abraham beheld that night. And so, Abram turns, and in a heartfelt response back to God, it says it's clear in verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted that belief to Abram as righteousness. We could easily spend the entire sermon unpacking this single verse, and many have done it, and, and, and exploring the depths of this doctrine. But for the sake of preaching at a pace that allows us to get through the whole chapter, let's just consider a couple of things. First, what's being said at first glance is that Abram trusted God's word and, and that God commended his character for that trust. Some scholars would say, particularly more leaning on the left side, they would say, that's all there is to see here. That Abram trusted God and, and, and God w- was happy with him. But as we see this verse exposited throughout the New Testament, I'm telling you, there's great joy going on here, and there's something so much deeper than than a mere commendation of Abraham for belief in a single promise. Here's what Paul has to say of of this, this verse in Romans 4. He says, The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered back, or who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And back a few verses, Paul says that it was faith that was counted to Abram as righteousness. Yes, Abram believed God's word in the single promise, but there's a clear case in exposition in Scripture that he believed in God himself. Abram had faith in the person of God, not just the promise. You know, I've actually had conversations with one leader in an evangelical church who said he believed that people in the Old Testament were saved or or justified by their keeping the law. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says it was God's command that Abram be circumcised, another covenantal sign, but one we go into, but it was before Abram was circumcised that he was justified in the eyes of God. Abram was made righteous by faith alone. No one could ever be justified by any amount of keeping the law. But that knowledge doesn't come to us intuitively. It certainly wasn't until I was in my later teens that I really understood justification by faith alone. And, and I say it's not intuitive because we often think that our works merit the grace of God. But to be justified by the law, we'd have to keep it perfectly. And no man, save Christ alone, can do that or will ever do that. So how can someone be justified by faith? How can someone be justified by faith before Christ even came to this earth? That's a question we wrestle with and, and one that should be a serious source of joy And Paul puts it again this way in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9. This is amazing. 
He says in Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, God always planned for Christ's righteousness to cover the sins of anyone who believed at any time. We sometimes call this the covenant of grace, and you might remember us talking about this as we recited part of the Westminster Larger Catechism earlier today. The covenant of grace teaches us that as opposed to the covenant of works where by Adam's first sin, sin came into the world for all people because he did not live according to the standard of God's perfect righteous and holiness. The covenant of grace tells us that through faith in a redeemer, we're delivered from sin and misery. So then we see in, in these six verses, God's covenant is a, is a great, deep, profound comfort to our fears. And firstly, that's, that's in the grace that's offered to anyone who believes. Without the hope of Christ, we fear for our lives. Without Christ's hope, what hope do we have? But even for the Christian, we wrestle with fear, with the troubles of this world on a daily basis. And his covenant is not a comfort to the sinner who first comes to him, not just there, but it's a comfort to us every day that we rest on the promises of God for our lives. And he tells us here, don't be afraid of coming to me with tough questions. If you've come with an earnest heart asking God to fulfill his promises, he will answer you. Take comfort in God's covenant. At this point, now the scene in our passage begins to shift as Abram's poised to ask another question. And, and the question that Abram's about to ask reminds me a little bit of a time in my own life. We, we have a lot of the college students back today. And I think back to, to early in my college experience, when I moved to Manhattan for the first time, and I was faced with the challenge of navigating how to rent a home. Like many other young people who come from Manhattan, or who come to Manhattan, I was excited at the possibility of living in a house away from my family and with several of my friends. What could possibly go wrong, right? Well, I, so I strolled into the office of the property management company, and I was expecting to, to sign up for the house, sign, sign me up for the house that I'm interested in, but I was surprised to find that I was not only required to fill out a quite detailed legal agreement, a legal contract, a covenant of sorts, you might say, but also that down in the fine print, it said I was responsible to find a guarantor for this agreement. For whatever reason, it turns out that the company didn't trust my friends and I to move into this house and be able to say, we got everything taken care of. Instead, I was expected to find some adult with a high enough income who could put their name next to mine and say, I'm willing to put myself at risk to act as a guarantee on the behalf of Adam and his friends regarding this property. Thankfully, I, I can report today that the house is still standing and we didn't burn it down. But when we speak of covenants as, as binding agreements, it's natural to ask how a covenant is guaranteed. And that's exactly what Abram does and what unfolds in the rest of this chapter. 
And in these next few verses, it becomes abundantly clear, beyond God's covenant being a comfort, as I said, as we saw, that secondly, the covenant, this covenant of grace is not contingent on human effort. So we'll read in, in verses 7 through 8. It says, And he that is God said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You see, God had sufficiently addressed Abram's concerns about the offspring in verses 1 through 6, but there was still a matter of his promise for the land that his offspring would receive as an inheritance. And Abram asks, to put it another way, Lord, I see now that you will be true to your word and provide me with a son. But if you would permit permit me one more question, how do I know this land is guaranteed for my children? One commentator suggests that this is not a question of doubt, as if Abraham uh, succumbed to the fear, again, that he had earlier in the chapter, but that this is a prayer of supplication. Another distinction between Abram's first question and his second would be the first concerns what would come to pass in his lifetime, the son that he would father, and the second is farther out in the future. And so again, we see a a conversation, a dialogue of sorts develop between Abram and God. And this time, beyond looking at just the stars in the sky, we find a very special ceremony as a symbol of the covenant. So it says in in verse 9, God directed Abram, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he, Abram, brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, what's going on here might seem a little weird. In in part, that's because the binding agreements that we make today tend to be between parties who are seated across a conference table with legal documents in hand, rather than in a field with animals offered as a sacrifice. Today we might say something like, Ed, uh, cut a deal with so-and-so. But in ancient Hebrew, the term used for making a covenant, when it said somebody made a covenant, was actually to cut And so, the term to cut a covenant very much came in many ways from ceremonies like this, like what we see unfolding between God and Abram here. The basic idea is that some some specific animals would be prepared, they'd be cut in half, they'd be laid on opposite sides, opposing sides of a path. And the parties of the covenant would each then pass through the pieces while promising to keep their end of the deal. In effect, they were saying, if I fail to live up to my end of the bargain, if I break my vows, may I be like these animals. May I be cut in pieces. May I be cursed. That's a sobering symbol, to say the least. But before the ceremony proceeds, before either of the parties were were to walk through the pieces, Abram is confronted with a prophetic vision from the Lord. Beginning in verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. At the point when Abram would participate in this covenant ceremony, when he'd step up and declare his commitment to God and obedience to his commands, rather than going through the pieces, Abram falls in a deep sleep characterized by dreadful darkness. Just like countless other prophets who fell when the presence of God appeared, Abram evidently also falls before the Lord. We, we might ask, why is another fearful scene present here? Especially when God just told Abram, fear not. Take comfort in me. Be not afraid. I th- well, I think the answer lies in the source of the fear. The sense of fear we assume Abram to be experiencing amid a dreadful darkness is directly connected to sin. Now, you may not see the word sin on a page, but God tells Abram these 400 years his offspring will suffer before they actually inherit the land will be years of, of, of difficult affliction. And as a result of sin that is foreseen, it's almost it had to have felt like God's promises might not even come to pass because of his people being in, in bondage. And so what I, what I want us to see in these verses is that if the covenant's fulfillment in, in his offspring inheriting the land, if that was ultimately contingent on their obedience, if that ultimately depended on human effort, it would never come to pass. We would do well to learn from this first half of the prophecy, this, that if the covenant of grace, the hope that we have of salvation by faith in Christ, if that was somehow instead dependent on our obedience, we too would be hopelessly lost because of our bondage and our slavery to sin. It's no coincidence that the moment Abraham would step up to the plate to perform his end of the covenant ceremony, to make his solemn vow, that instead he's brought low and humbled before God. We look at our own lives, and it's easy to write this off. It's easy to say, we pass a simple doctrinal test. Of course we are justified by faith alone. But even after we're justified, while we're being sanctified, we still have to guard against the pitfall of believing that our works produce some, sign, some kind of continuing justification. This is how Calvin would put it. Many are grossly deceived, for they grant instead that, indeed, that the righteousness which is freely bestowed upon sinners and offered to the unworthy is received by faith alone, but they restrict this to a moment of time so that he who at first obtained justification by faith may afterwards be justified by good works. By this method, faith is nothing else than the beginning of righteousness, whereas righteousness itself consists in a continual course of works. Do you see how terrible this line of thinking is? Calvin wraps up by saying, almost comically, I think, they who thus trifle must altogether be insane. Even to the end of life, we are led towards the eternal kingdom of the righteousness of God by faith. Don't fall into the trap of believing, I've got the doctrine of justification by faith alone down, but then go on to live in such a way that you continually feel justified by your works each day. That's something we might not even recognize is going on in our lives. So a good question 
to check ourselves might be, does the fact that I did X, whatever that may be, does that make me feel like I impressed God? Does that make me feel like it sets me apart as better than other people? If, if you're doing that, you might be believing a lie that your works merit some sort of good standing before God. But the first covenant God made, God made with man was contingent on works, and we bombed it from the beginning. It's only by grace, the covenant of grace, that we can be saved. And the good news is that the rest of this passage is chock full of grace. So let's, let's continue on. If, if you turn back to our text, starting in verse 14, he says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. If you're familiar at all with Moses' story, then you might understand what's going on here and how God is prophesying judgment in the form of the plagues that the Egyptians will later face for refusing to let the Hebrews go. God's retribution on sin will be decisive and just. His chosen people, Abram's offspring 400 years later, um, they, they will go out from Egypt and they'll go out praising God, singing and dancing, and indeed, as is prophesied here, with great possessions. But what they didn't do is wake up one day and decide to free themselves. It took multiple miracles, supernatural works of God, to free them from their slavery. And God was indeed faithful to the promise he made long before their time. As this short prophecy comes to a close, our attention is turned back to the covenant ceremony. And we remember Abram's question. How am I to know the offspring will possess the land? What is the guarantee? And God's final response in this ongoing dialogue reads thus, beginning in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, Abram's vision is complete, and he's ready for the covenant ceremony. But instead of becoming a participant and walking through the pieces, that's what we'd expect, right? Instead of that, he sees a sight that I, honestly would, would give many of us the creeps. What on earth is going on with, this, with a fire pot and with a smoking torch? Those, those inanimate objects going through the pieces? Think about for a second. How does God appear to people in the Bible? It's often said that we, that we cannot see the face of God as sinful people. We can't behold his glory in its fullness lest we die. And so God appears in various forms and different types. And technically, we, we refer to this as a theophany a visible form of the invisible God. Just as God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, or just as, as God led the Jewish people later by a cloudy pillar of fire, so too he appears in the fire of this torch and pot. And so we see, take note of what's happening here. God himself 
steps up to the plate. While Abram's lying on the ground, after he'd fallen asleep, maybe still drowsy, trying to figure out what's going on with, with sin, God steps up to the plate. And he guarantees the covenant by his very self. The author of Hebrews describes God's promise to Abram this way in Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. There was no greater guarantee, no greater guarantor of the covenant than God himself. And Abram would have understood God to have been saying, I swear by my eternally existent self, that if this promise doesn't come true, let me, the author of life, experience death and be cut and torn in two. If there were ever a solid foundation of a promise for us to rest on, it is this. God is saying, if I don't live up to the end of my bargain, if I'm not faithful to my promises, let the immutable become mutable. And the good news of the gospel is that God didn't only guarantee the Abrahamic covenant on the basis of himself, but he's guaranteed the covenant of grace on account of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of anyone who would believe. Paul says again in Galatians 3, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to us, us who receive him by faith. If your faith is in Christ today, your debt is paid, and there's a rock-solid guarantee of God on your behalf. I want to return to that question to close that I asked at the beginning. What do you find worthy? Abram, above all, he'd come with great possessions. Above everything else, he found the promises of God to be worthy of his deepest trust. And when we consider God's promises for us today, remember there are a comfort amid all the fear and turbulence and trying times in the world. Remember that, and be thankful, they're not contingent on our effort. We didn't just wake up one day and decide to save ourselves. No, God guaranteed our salvation. And so let us worship God. Let us trust in him. Turn to the author of our faith. And, and give him great thanksgiving for the guarantee that he's given us at a great cost to himself. Let me pray for us to close. Lord, we know you are so gracious to us. We can't even wrap our minds around the depths of your loving kindness. It's so far beyond what we could ever ask, what we could ever earn, what we'd ever deserve And so we ask, Lord, that you would convict us in moments where we rest on our works as the basis of some sort of continuing justification. And that when we experience fear, when we look at the world and all that's going on, that we would look at your promises and say, those promises are rock solid. Comfort us, Lord. We're so grateful that our hope rests on the surest foundation and that you will always be faithful to us. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.